Well, do you have a question about the Bible? Do you ever wonder what you can know and understand about God? Maybe you're struggling with an issue in your walk with God. Maybe there's some biblical passage you need some explanation on. Well, you've come to the right place. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Riddelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. The phone number to get on the program today and to ask your Bible question is 877-548-3675. 877-548-3675. Now, I'm not Michael Riddelnik. I'm Mike Favares, and I'm sitting in today for him, and I'm coming to you live across many moody stations all over the country and this is the time for you and i to talk on the radio about the bible about god about the christian life about anything that you're wondering about that i might be able to address i'm the pastor of compass bible church in aliso viejo california and few people seem to know where that is but that is right in the heart of south orange county california and we're trying to shine the light brightly out here. I happen to be a graduate of the Moody Bible Institute. A lot of investment there made in my life early on in my Christian life. So thankful for that. I'm also the host of Focal Point Radio. If you listen here on the Moody Network, I hope that you've heard it. It's all different times, depending on when you're listening and where you are. But I uh, love to go verse by verse through the Bible every single day. Today, we're here to get your questions. And the phone number for you to get on the program is 877 877- Five four eight three six seven five. Even if you've never called in before, today's the day. Eight seven seven five four eight three six seven five. Or you can send your questions through our open line website. That's openlineradio.org, openlineradio.org, and that's where you can go and you can find that Ask Michael a Question section. You can click on that and send us your Bible question. Openlineradio.org. We'd love to get your question that way as well, but we'd love to hear a voice on the radio. We'd love to have you call in today. When there's an open line that uh, opens up, you hear a person get done with a question, that's a great time for you to call in if the lines are busy or full. we got a great production team here. As you know, Open Line is made possible by Trish McMillan. She's producing Courtney Young, our engineer, of course, and Lynn is answering the phones when you call in, and then she'll get you on the program. Our number again, 877 548 3675. So I hope you've settled in. Hope you're ready to go. We're going to study the Bible and get to your questions in just a minute. But I got to tell you what I've been doing this week. I've been out at a camp, the one camp I do every year to preach God's word to teenagers. And we had hundreds of them gathered together. And I talked about the fear of the Lord. And I'll tell you, that is, that was the main focus of what I was teaching, but I'll tell you, the, the, the opposite of that is when we fall to the fear of people. We fall to the fear of man, as Proverbs 29, 25 says, it's a snare, right? When we're worried about what everyone thinks of us, when we're worried about what might people say, or what are they going to do if I stand up for Christ, if I speak up for Christ, if I continue to hold the line in following Christ, what are they going to think of me? It didn't even have to be about our Christian life. If we're paralyzed by what, by what people think, I'll tell you, there's nothing worse for our Christian life than exalting the place of human beings in our lives to make us feel like we've got to please them in every situation. Of course, Paul said, listen, if I were out to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now let that phrase sink in. If I were out to please people, right? If I wanted people to be happy with everything I said, everything I did, how I lived my life, he said, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. I mean, that, that really gets above every other priority of our lives is we are here to serve the Lord. We want God to say to us one day when we stand before Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. And that means we cannot be people that fear 
what men think. We just can't. It's interesting that as I preached about the fear of God and submitting ourselves to the greatness of God, the interesting attribution of what we are like to the rest of the world is Proverbs 28.1, which says that the righteous are as bold as a lion. That's interesting. See, to the rest of the world, they think, wow, this person's not afraid of anything. And Jesus said, once you settle the main issue of you recognizing the authority of God and being made right with him, reconciliation with God through Christ, right? The one who has the authority, as Jesus said, to cast our soul into hell. Once we make peace with God, right, then we're not afraid of anything in this world. We're not afraid of a, a cancer diagnosis. We're not afraid of, of, of financial problems. We're not afraid of a, of a letterhead that comes in from a, a law office where we're in trouble uh, legally. We, we are ready to stand firmly on the fact that whatever trial we face, we're going to please the Lord in this. We're going to be bold. We're going to trust in God. We're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We're going to fear no evil because we know that God is with us. See, vanquishing that fear of man has got to be, it's got to be routed out of our lives by a healthy fear of God. And so that's such an important truth, so important for my life to keep that front and center, particularly as I stand up with microphones and, and preach to people every week. And I got to make sure that the sermons, the counsel, the leadership, whatever I provide, I got to make sure this is pleasing to God. That's the most important thing. So keep that in mind today. And we got a lot of other questions I'm sure people have, and we've got a full board. So we want to take some of those questions right now. Where are we going to go? Let's go to, uh, what do we got here on the board? Let's start with Michael in, in Georgia. He's asking a question here, and he's in Locust Grove. Michael, you're on the air. How can I help? Hey, thank you so much for taking my question. Um, I was... Uh, I was wondering, uh, according to Genesis 21:14, Abraham sent uh, Hagar and Ishmael uh, out with uh, very little provisions. And I was just, I understand the necessity uh, why he sent him out, but uh, why, would, why did he send such little provision? Yeah, remember the whole problem here was between ultimately Hagar and Sarah. And 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 I, uh, I, and I want to be careful how I word this, but it's amazing how many things we might do in a situation when there's trouble in our marriage. And certainly this child had caused great trouble in Abraham's marriage. And so he was doing things that I think were in a place of, of angst in his own heart. I think a lot of what he was doing here, of course, he didn't he didn't feel good about. I, I mean, Abraham's got a lot of resources and sending uh, Hagar out with this child, Ishmael, without a lot of provisions. I, I get it. That's a that's a very important observation of the text, but we've got to get into the sandals of Abraham here. And of course, he's not perfect. He's not presented as perfect, anywhere near perfect in Genesis. But here he is capitulating to some of the pressures of what his wife was wanting. She was filled with envy and jealousy, and there was strife there. And so what he did here, I, I would say, not commendable, and all in God's plan, of course, to have this uh, shift from Hagar and this child Ishmael back to Isaac and the soon to arrive Isaac and Sarah. But I get it. But sometimes we read the text so, you know, kind of two dimensionally, and we got to get three dimensional sometimes to get into what this must have felt like to have this great rivalry that takes place within this uh, situation the handmaid Hagar and Sarah and Abraham trying to make peace here in his domestic life and making a decision here that I think you and I rightly can say, Michael, probably not. Probably not the best decision to make, and certainly doesn't look very compassionate. Hope yes, that helps. Um, 
Yeah, I was. Uh, I guess I would imagine that um, Abraham would have like set up maybe a house for her and uh, Ishmael, and you know, uh, servants maybe. Um, you know, that's what I would have expected. So anyway, right. And I'm sure there's a lot of things people would expect from from you and I yeah. in situations right. when the wife is like, "There's no possible way you are going to do that here." And and I I don't want to look at this as a divorce, but it certainly it reads that way on on the surface. And I see a lot of people doing a lot of things in the midst of a divorce situation that you think, "Wow, that is that seems to be out of character for that person." And there's so many tensions and strains, and that's a tough mm-hmm. tough realization here that we've got some of our biblical characters going through some really difficult strained situations, including some that make, uh, in this case, uh, Ishmael suffer, but God provided, of course, and he did, and uh, he grew into be a uh, mighty nation. It caused a lot of uh, strife in Israel's history, but of course, that's how that works out. Michael, thanks for the call. Appreciate it so much. We're going to go to Donna now in Lauderdale Lakes, Florida, listening on WRMB. You're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? Good morning, and thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm struggling with this description in Zechariah uh, chapter 13, verse 8. It's it's horrific, but um, I'm just wondering if it happened in the past or if it's in the future. Uh, when I look at all these passages from chapter 12 to 14, it keeps saying the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So I don't think that two-thirds perishing can be the Holocaust. So then I wonder, maybe it pertained to around the time of 70 AD and those wars, but there's nothing that I've found that tells me a percentage. I see estimates of how many people perished in that time, but I, I can't be sure, and I was wondering if you could shed any light on that, or, or it might be future. Yes, I believe it is future, and I think as Dr. Rodelnik and I would hold to very carefully that we sometimes see biblical scholars looking at prophecies and often trying to append them to the past in terms of our reference point to 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. But if you start looking for the third throughout the Bible, you'll see it dozens of times in the book of Revelation and the kind of destruction that comes. And you'll see intertwined, particularly in Zechariah chapter 13 and 14, so much that we believe is yet to be accomplished. And so we know that the destruction, the land, the fire, the, the, the kinds of things that take place to decimate Israel, we have that whole depiction there going on in the book of Revelation, often focused on the Gentile nations, but we see Israel suffering as well through that time that the Old Testament prophets say is the time of Jacob's trouble. So, so important that we keep in view the futuristic focus of so much of biblical prophecy. And I thank you for that call, Donna. And we got a break coming up. I'm sitting in Mike Fabars for Dr. Michael Redelnik, and you're listening to Open Line on Moody Radio. If you want to be a part of the program, you can call us at 877-548-3675. 877-548-3675. And we'll be right back. The Old Testament books of Psalms and Proverbs teach us biblical life lessons and principles that are too important to skip over. That's why we'd like to send you the commentaries on Psalms and Proverbs taken from the Moody Bible Commentary. Learn how the poetry and prophecy in these two books apply to our lives. 
You can request your copy today when you give a gift of any amount to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or give online at openlineradio.org. Well, welcome back to Open Line with Dr. Michael Redelnik. I'm Mike Fabares sitting in for him today, and we've got questions lined up, so let's just jump right back in. Let's go to Jim in Smyrna, Tennessee, listening on WFCM. Jim, you're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help? A friend of mine just recently told me that he believes the all-millennial position uh, kind of ties in with the last question that you asked answered. But is there a, a quick and conclusive argument for uh, the all-millennial position on eschatology? Well, I would say, you know, if there was one verse we could point to, we probably wouldn't have the dispute. But if you read in Revelation chapter 20, the six times we have the repetition of a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, it it just, it seems as though that is a literal segment of time. And that's one indicator that makes us say, okay, there must be a thousand year period where the things described there in Revelation 20 are going to take place. And if that's the case where Satan is chained up and he's not tempting the nations and and here Christ is ruling and reigning, we have all this taking place in such a positive way, then the question would be, well, what does the Old Testament say about a time like that? And you find in the prophets, we have plenty of discussion about a time when Christ is reigning on the throne and David is prince and we've got everything working the way it ought to and and people are living to be uh, hundreds and hundreds of years old. It says that they die at a hundred, then they would be mourned like an infant dying. So there is a time of this uh, relative perfection, and yet death is still functioning on the planet, yet everything seems to be very peaceful. Uh, everybody's taking their swords and, and pounding them into plowshares, and they're worried about pruning hooks instead of uh, you know implements of warfare. And you say, okay, this seems to match. This seems to connect to what we see here, that it must be taking place for Israel in a literal a uh, situation where all those promises can be taken very normally as you read them and say, well, when has this happened? When has this taken place? And we would say, okay, all those promises for Israel in the land with Jesus on the throne must be taking place in this thousand-year period. That makes the most biblical sense to Dr. Radelnik and I and, and many others in this pre-millennial camp. Uh, this pretty normal reading, uh, particularly of, of Revelation, I'm sorry, of Romans chapter 13 and, and 14. Uh, and we see so much of this in Romans, particularly chapters 9, 10, and 11. And we understand that this future time of the coming reign of Christ, if we don't believe that this is literal, if you're an millennialist, you believe that all of this is spiritualized now. It's not a literal thousand years. And all those promises in the Old Testament, well, they're not to be read normally. They sh- they're to be spiritualized. And the problem that we have with that, the problem I have with that, is that you cannot say that I know then how to read the rest of the prophecies of the Bible. What about the things Jesus said are coming? What about the eternal state? What about the things that are spoken of throughout the Bible that I've been looking at and trying to read with the kind of clarity that I would read anything? Uh, you know, a list of my wife sending me to the store to buy groceries. I mean, I'm just I'm reading them and making sense of them the way that anyone reading a, a sentence would make sense of it. If you don't read those texts that way and say, well, these have not been fulfilled yet, then you end up having to look at the scripture in a spiritualized way. And so that's an oversimplification 
justification, and of course this is a short answer as to why I am a premillennialist, and I believe those promises are going to take place in a literal sense in a thousand-year period. And so if you say all of this is fulfilled now in the church age, Someone might have had a good argument for that if we were living in 800 A.D. or 900 A.D. You'd think, well, it's all going to be wrapped up in 1,000 A.D. But that didn't take place, of course, and we pretty much doubled that, and we're sitting around still wondering about the fulfillment of those promises, and I would say that that's the reason that we are pre-millennialists. So does that help in thinking that through a little bit? There's no verse I can take you to other than to say Revelation 20, very literal reading, Old Testament prophecies, very literal reading, and we say it's yet to come. Does that help, Jim? Yes, thank you very much. Okay, let's go uh, to Rhonda out in Minnesota listening on KFSI. You're on the air with Mike Fabares. How can I help, Rhonda? Yes, um, I was wondering about um, God um, gave Abram the promised land. He had wanted his family to move to the promised land. And I was just kind of curious that when um, the famine, famine came and... Um, how come God didn't give um, Abram props so they didn't have to worry about going anywhere else? So they could yeah. have stayed at the promised land. No, that's a I great just question. I'm kind of curious that why, why he didn't, you know. Well, my answer would be to go to Hebrews chapter 11 to read the description from a New Testament perspective as to why God did not grant him those promises. He becomes a template for us of faith. And and it says there in that text, he was called to go to this place. He didn't know where he was going and he left and he went by faith and he lived there in that foreign land and he continued to trust God looking forward to something that's beyond what he could see. And Sarah also trusting in this promise and he made Sarah wait all those years to have that baby. And all of this is about faith, trusting in God, knowing that the promise is over the horizon. And that's the description given in Hebrews 11. And it becomes critical in the book of Romans chapter 4 that that kind of faith in saying, I will trust now in what God says for what he's going to deliver on across the horizon of this life is exactly the kind of faith we're to have to be saved from our sins. And that's the picture that is most important. So God wanted to use Abraham as an example. And so often we find that in our lives, things happen. We wonder, why why did this happen? If God were God, wouldn't he do this different for me? And there are so many things riding on our lives that affect other people, things that God wants to teach us, things he wants to teach other people through us. And so I think we've got an answer there in Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 14, and that picture of that hope of what's going on beyond the horizon is a great template of faith for us. And so, Rhonda, he really is made to wait and made to even suffer deprivation for the sake of being for us the father of faith, as he's called in the New Testament. Does that help, Rhonda? Oh, so so, um, he took him away from the promised land um, for a reason. Yes, for the reason I I think of being our father of faith. How does he demonstrate faith, not only to trust God for the forgiveness of sins, Romans 4, but as a template for life in Hebrews 11, 8 through 14? That's a great picture I was just kind of wondering if he had done something wrong that the reason, you know, they didn't do that. So he just had faith in him. 
That well, he yeah, he was an example of faith, and he did plenty wrong. But I don't think there's a tie between him not going into the promised land like there was for Moses. Now Moses did something very specific that God said, "This is why Moses, you're yeah. not going into the promised land." But that is not the case there with Abraham because we can't tie it to a particular statement that was made about here's was why that you're the not promised going. land that they went to. Well, that's right. Canaan ended up being the promised land. Now, this was 600 years, right, before Moses would lead the people to the front door of the promised land, but it's the yeah. same picture. It wasn't called the promised land at that time, other than the fact that it was the land of promise, the place that Abraham would get to have this innumerable okay. amount of descendants. So, Rhonda, thanks for the call from okay. Minnesota. Hope you're doing well up there, and we're going to head out to Jan in Atlanta. Jan, you're on the air. How can I help? Hello. Uh, I have a question about baptismal and conversations with other Christians. They say, well, you're not saved if you don't get baptized. But I don't I don't feel like that's the case. I thought it was an expression of salvation. But then when I read the New Testament, there are variables that make me wonder if I, I really have the right perception. Right. One, well, baptism- one friend is it's like, you got to be baptized. Sure. And, and, and the reason we want to emphasize the focus on wanting to be baptized is because Jesus told us to be baptized, right? In, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission is to make disciples and baptize them. And so this is the thing that we do, baptizing them in water. Now, the reason there's some confusion is you can read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, and say, well, baptism seems to be the thing that saves us. But in the text of Romans 6, we're talking about what the word baptism means. Baptizo is the Greek word, which means to be placed into. And when we have someone being placed into Christ, in a relationship with Christ, that happens through faith. And we say that person has been placed into Christ. Paul loved that phrase, to be in Christ. Well, that picture is very clear that we are saved by being placed into Christ. Now, Jesus says, make a disciple who's been placed into Christ spiritually and place him into water, which of course is what he submitted himself to with John the Baptist being placed into water. So he says, you now take these disciples that have been placed into Christ, into me, and you place them into water as an external sign. So yes, it is an external sign of what has already happened to someone who's been made a disciple. But the reason it's important is because Jesus said to do it. And if Jesus said to do it, then we do it. And that's what we are called to do. So it's as important as any other command that Jesus makes. This is the first command of obedience for a brand new Christian is go sign up and get baptized in your new church because that's the place that we are to express to the people around us wherever they do it. They could do it at a river or a pool, a lake, or in a baptismal tank in their church. But very important that we do what Jesus says. So it becomes important because Jesus told us to do it. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. And yet it's not the thing that saves us. The thing that saves us is being reconciled to God through Christ. And that's what's most important. And the reason we always are saying there's a distinction between between becoming a Christian and being placed into water in water baptism. Does that make a, a clear distinction for you, Jim? But then I'm also reading that the water changes into the Holy Spirit. And, and Everybody seems to have a different concept, and it's like there's two things that happen after you get saved, and the water goes to the Holy Spirit because we're baptized in it also, and 
from the description you're saying, it's like it's almost one and the same, but because the Holy Spirit had to come after Jesus left, I don't know if that's in conjunction. Well, it is in conjunction for all of us as Christians in this age. There is a separation between those in the first century who walked with Christ or were coming to to follow Christ in the in the first century, and then the book of Acts, we had this act of the Spirit being given to the church in Acts chapter 2. So there was a distinction in time in the first century for the first followers of Christ. There is no distinction now. It is a conjunction between being saved, right? If we don't have the Spirit of God, here's what Paul says in Romans 8, then we're not his, his children, right? The Spirit of God being present in us is synonymous with us being in Christ. So there is no distinction between those two. And we need to say today, you can read some historical situations, even in the Gospels, where it says the Spirit of God was with the disciples, but then one day would be in the disciples. That's a distinction that only exists for that first century follower of Christ. Today, become a follower of Christ. We repent of our sins. We put our trust in Christ, and we are filled then with the Spirit. He indwells our lives. He becomes the seal of our inheritance. And so don't get confused about the fact that you've got to get saved by trusting in Christ, and then later you kind of do something else, and the Spirit comes into your life, and that's related to water, so that has to come when you get baptized. That is not the case. That's a confusion, and though people say it, it is not what the Bible teaches. And I hope, Jan, that clears it up. I know there's a lot of discussion about baptism, some people diving into the Gospels or the Book of Acts, and they're missing the normative, from now on, experience in the church age of people putting their trust in Christ and being baptized as a sign external of the reality that's already taken place in their lives. All right. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares sitting in today for Dr. Michael Redelnik. Uh, I am uh, so glad to be here today. Producer Trish McMillan is going to bring the mailbag in just a few minutes. You're listening to Open Line on Moody Radio. We'll be right back. Each week on Open Line with me, Dr. Michael Rydelnik, we sit around our radio kitchen table and study the scriptures together. You can become a kitchen table partner by supporting Open Line each month. As a benefit to becoming a partner, you'll receive a bi-weekly email called a Bible study moment where I'll share Bible study tips, answer some common Bible questions, and encourage you in your spiritual walk. Become a Kitchen Table Partner today. Call 888-644-7122 or go to openlineradio.org. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabaris filling in for Michael Rydelnik today. And it is the mailbag segment. That's when you get your questions through our website, comes to us, and we've got Trish McMillan here to give us those questions. Uh, good morning, Trish. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. <laughs> I, I realize we're half hour into the program now, but you've been doing a great job, and I really appreciate you being here well, thanks, while Michael Trish. is gone. Uh, our first question is from Georgia, New Mexico, listens to KTGW, and he's been reading the Gospels and has seen a few, I will call them discrepancies, but a few differences. Um, in particular, he was looking at um, Jesus telling Peter that he would deny him. And in the Matthew 26 ver- um, uh, verse, it says, This very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In the parallel passage in Mark 14, it says this very night before a rooster crows twice, 
you yourself will deny me three times. How do we reconcile these two different versions? Yeah, and remember this, and, and we just had Jay Warner Wallace, kind of the world-famous L.A. homicide detective, teach a apologetics uh, course here at our school at Compass Bible Institute, and it was great to have him assign some books in that class that help us remember something he's often reminded of as a detective, that if you have stories uh, if you have witnesses speaking of things in exactly the same terms all the time, you've got uh, some corroboration going on and collaboration and conspiracy. And uh, there's something to be said for the truthfulness of the details being described in different ways. Now, it doesn't mean that this is uh, any discrepancy that's unreconcilable. It's just these people are explaining what Jesus says, and one is just speaking of the rooster crowing, and one is saying, he said twice. And so there's not a distinction there. It's not like one says, well, once. It's just that one is making it clear that Jesus said twice. And so, of course, I'm going to say that Mark is correct, and, and Peter I'm sorry, that uh, Matthew is just summarizing what Jesus told Peter, which is the rooster's going to crow. Now, I've heard plenty of explanations about this, like roosters sometimes have a crow before dawn, and, you know, when it's a real one, it's, you know, at least more than one, and so it's twice. Uh, regardless of, of the situation here, you would recognize that there is uh, a clarity about the morning coming. We don't have, uh, you know, uh, lamps coming on or going off or streetlights or whatever. This is a, a way to describe the the coming of the morning and the focus is on the fact that here is going to be a denial of a guy who's saying, I would never deny you. I'd go to death with you. Well, you're not really standing as strongly as you think. And before the morning, uh, you're going to deny me three times. And so the detail that is added by Mark, I think, is precisely what Jesus said. He may have said even more in that sentence, but that's what we have a record of. And of course, Matthew's just summarizing the fact that we're talking about the coming of morning, which is uh, designated here and announced by the rooster crow in the morning. And we've got some across the way from not too far where I live in, uh, you know, the kind of the nicer side of the street. And uh, those guys over there, sometimes you'll hear those rooster crow. And uh, when they mean it, uh, you know it. And when hmm. they mean it, they're doing it more than once. So I think that's what's going on in that passage. So when we see something like this in the Bible, I know it can often be used by those against the Bible to say, see, it's wrong. But this should not cause us to doubt what the Bible says or doubt its infallibility when we see a, a, a difference like this. No, precisely, because here's a recollection here, which we believe is guided by God's Spirit to record what has happened, and, and the difference on what's chosen to be recorded from a statement of Christ is just reminding us that these two people aren't just reading off the same script, just throwing out the same sentences because they've collaborated in a dark corner and none of this really happened. It all actually happened, and, and, and God is making clear by the nuances of distinction on how these things are explained that this is all historically truthful. I mean, think about it. We could have one gospel, but God gave us four, and he gave us four. To, to really bolster the, the authenticity, the veracity, or the truthfulness of this historical account of Christ. And so there's entire courses. I think back to my time as a student at Moody, my first course on the Synoptic Gospels, and uh, you know we start tackling all these, and, and we start to recognize as Bible students, there's no hard distinctions here between any of the factual things being said. It's just the way that these things are described are distinct, and they prove to us that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all real people, and they're all re using real sources, and some of it is the eyewitness accounts of them uh, themselves recalling the things that Jesus said. 
Mm. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, Thanks for that question, George. Our next question is from Karen in Texas. And she says, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes were both written by Solomon, who ultimately turned away from God. Can we trust that he is writing something good? Yes, we can trust it because what he says ultimately in these two books is God's truth that has been recognized from the first generation of it being written that these are the words of God. It was collected among the uh, the priests and the scribes and put aside as God's truth. So to say, well, he was a guy who turned away from God. Well, the whole point of Ecclesiastes is for all the turning away from God that he'd experienced, uh, you know, he uh, recognized it was all about being faithful to the Lord and keeping his commandments. And that's what the whole message of Ecclesiastes ends up being. It's like saying, can we really trust the Psalms? Because David wrote so many of them, and he murdered a guy named Uriah. So I'm thinking, well, yeah, of course we can, because we know all the authors of the Scripture have sin in their lives, but the real author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit moving them. And that's why that old adage is a good one, that God can, can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And so he has picked up Uh, imperfect authors and delivered a message perfectly as the Spirit guided them to write down what he intended to say. And that's the whole doctrine of the God-breathed nature, the word we often use, inspiration of Scripture, that God moved these men along, as the Bible says, to write exactly what God wanted. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, Next question is about a specific proverb. Debbie in Washington listens to KMBI it is looking at Proverbs 22, 6, which says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Can you explain this verse and how we yeah. should apply it today? Yeah, well, of course, the way we should apply it today is to make sure that we're training up children on, in the way they should go. That's the whole point, because the general proverb, and remember, it is a proverb, and a proverb means this is a principle that generally follows. Like telling my kid when he's in my home, you better give money to the Lord and you better save money because the money you save you'll need in the future. Or when they're about to get their first car, when my kids were 16 and said, you better save money, not just to pay for your gas, but you ought to save money because your tires are going to go bad at one point. You need to replace them. So keep your job here saving money. So the principle is if you save the money, you'll be able to buy tires. Now that's a proverb, basically. It's a principle. But in reality, something may go wrong and he may save money and some terrible thing may happen and he may not be able to afford those tires. And so it is with training up a child. Some people are training their children faithfully, but because of some situation that has arisen in God's providence, right? This child doesn't end up walking in that way, at least initially and maybe long-term and maybe for the remainder of his life, but that does not invalidate the principle. I would still tell my kids, my third kid, hey, you better save money because you're going to need tires. Well, who knows? Maybe that car will never need tires because they're going to sell it in two years, or maybe they're going to have an accident and all their money is going to go to fixing the repairs on the other guy's car. I don't know, but that's a principle I'm always going to teach. And so I'm always going to tell people, train up a child in the way he should go, because when he's old, he won't depart from it. That's a generally true principle of scripture that should guide our lives That's called wisdom. That's a proverbial statement of wisdom, and that's why it's in the Scripture. Which is different from a promise that if you do this, it will absolutely happen every time. Correct. Here's a promise, right? If we trust in Christ and repent of our sins, right, we're going to be forgiven of our sins and become a child of God. That's an invariable promise of God. That's not a proverb. That's a promise, and those are distinct. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, Next question 
is from Thomas in Michigan. He listens to WGNB. He's been trying to understand the word, uh, a word, um, <laughs> it's an easy word, but the word brother in the context of the New Testament. He has friends who think that brother also refers to cousins of Jesus um, because he didn't have brothers or sisters, but he had cousins. Can you clarify this with what the Greek means? Yeah, well, the Greek adelphos is the word that is used in the Bible, and it can be used metaphorically for our spiritual connections that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, but it is not used that way in the passage that he's referring to, or the Catholic is referring to. That's Matthew, I think, chapter 13, the end of that chapter, it talks about Jesus's brothers. I think it's verse 55. Yes, verse 55. And that is referring to his brothers because they're trying to say, this person, normal guy, we saw him grow up here, we know who his brothers are. So um, there is a different word for cousin. If you want to talk about a cousin, you could have enlisted another Greek word for that. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but the word adelphos here in the context of what is being described is the same thing that's going on over there in chapter 12, verse 46. If you go back up or scroll back up, you'll see that he's speaking to the crowds and his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. You know, his his disciples are called his brothers in the next verse, but his brothers clearly and his mother is referred to as his biological mother and his biological brothers, not his cousins. And the reasons Catholics say this is because they're trying to maintain the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And that is not what the Bible teaches, and this is one of the examples of it. Uh, we don't have any reason that Mary would disobey the Lord's command that we see given through the apostles in 1 Corinthians 7, that a wife and a husband have each other in a one-flesh relationship, and they shouldn't deny each other that. And yet they have to because they've created a whole theology around Mary, and one of the things they demand is that she never had uh, sexual relations with her husband, and that perpetual virginity is upended by the passage there in Matthew 13, 55, that talks about Mary and Jesus's brothers. So that, that's that's the problem, and that's the reason that they're trying to establish all of this in their uh, theology, but that's uh, really a big stretch because that's not what the word Adelphos means. All right. Thank you. Thank you for the vocabulary lesson. I appreciate it. Um, I will have more questions for our mailbag next hour, but that's it for today, or for this hour, I mean. That's it for well, this very hour. Very good. <laughs> well, we're so glad to get those questions, and the way to go to get those questions is to go online, hit that Ask Michael button, and we can get your question through the internet. Well, this is Mike Fabar as I'm sitting in today for Michael Redelnik, and uh, we're on open line, our number 877-548-3675, and we're going to be back right after these messages with more of your questions and more answers from the Bible. I want to tell you about this month's free gift from Chosen People Ministries. People often tell me they only learned about this worldwide outreach to the Jewish people through my mentioning it here on Open Line. Well, this month, Chosen People Ministries is offering the booklet to an ancient people. This is the autobiography of Rabbi Leopold Cohn. It tells the story of the trials and triumphs of a young rabbi in his native rural Hungary in the late 19th century and his quest for truth. Leopold's trip to the new world and his indescribable joy in finding Yeshua are told in inspiring and timeless detail. Rabbi Cohn went on to found Chosen People Ministries. For your free copy of To an Ancient People, just go to the Open Line website. That's openlineradio.org. Scroll down. 
you'll see the link that says a free gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that. You'll be sent to a page where you can sign up for your very own free copy of To an Ancient People. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm Dr. Mike Fabares. I'm sitting in for Dr. Michael Rydelnik, and we've got a lot of questions on the board, so let's get back to them. Let's go up to Alaska. Tony, you're on the air with Pastor Mike. How can I help? Good morning, Pastor. Uh, question. My granddaughter, she's 18, and she's asking me uh, which Bible she should start reading, um, and uh, um, she should then start with the Old Testament or the New Testament. Yeah, well, if she's new to the Bible, I think it's great to dive into a gospel, and I love the gospel of Luke for brand new people to kind of explore the Bible, because it gives such a clear description of so many of the details of what it takes for us to understand what it means to trust in Christ and repent of our sins. It's just, it's it's masterfully done. Of course, all of the, all the Bible is, but this particular book, I think, connects so often with younger people. So I would recommend she starts studying in the gospel of Luke and after she's done with Luke, I would go to the book of Colossians. This is just kind of what I usually suggest for people that are new to the Bible and read about the life of Christ and read about what it is to walk with Christ in the book of Colossians. And that's just a good place to go. But you can't go wrong, particularly as a Christian trying to help a, a person understand Christ. I would certainly start in the New Testament. And then I would get into a reading program and make sure you're reading through the whole Bible every year. I just think that's a good pattern. So when you mean what Bible... I, if you mean what book of the Bible, that would be my answer. If you mean what translation of the Bible, I would just make sure it's a it's a well-respected translation, whether it's the New American Standard or the English Standard Version, uh, even the, the uh, New International Version. All these versions are made to be readable, and they're not in 500-year-old English, and, and that's that's helpful. Yes, no, the, uh, okay, thank you. But the, the, the book, first, the, the Bible, I am reading myself, the NIV, and sometimes I read the NSAB and the KJV. But she, want, she asked me which one would be the, the Bible, the easier or the more, more understandable for her to, to a Bible to get, please. Yes, the one that is given in, the, in the, the lowest of the ones you've named, reading level, would be the NIV. So the New International okay. Version would be good. And if you want to buy her a Bible, uh, they have a... Uh, Bible, a study Bible with ha <clears throat> that has all the notes. They just renamed it not too long ago. It's called the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible, which is a good place to go just because every difficult verse to understand, if you need some Old Testament background on it, it'll have some notes and some study notes and some maps if it needs a map. And all of that is very helpful. And if you're going to read an NIV, uh, the NIV Study Bible, it used to be called, but now it's called the Biblical Theology Study Bible. That's a good one to buy for someone who's just getting started at 18 to kind of dive into the Bible. So, Tony, thanks for that call. That's helpful. We're going to head out now to Rock Island, Illinois. Deborah, you're on the air. How can I help? Good morning, Mike, and thank you for taking my call. I've got a question concerning Mark chapter 14, verses 50 through 52. And my question is, why was the young man naked? 
Oh, okay. Well, he wasn't naked until they seized his clothing, his linen cloth around his body. But why didn't he have underwear on? I mean, this is a pretty personal question, but here's the answer. If you Uh look at the context, right, the reason he's naked is because they seized him, but he got out of their grasp, like you might have with somebody who's, you know, in a fight. Well, in this case, it's like his cloak, he didn't have his undergarments on. And if the context is just read with any kind of uh, sympathy to what's going on, we had the Last Supper, right, on, on, on Thursday night, and all of this is taking place in the middle of the night. So this one that's described in this passage that doesn't have his undergarments on, we're assuming is because this was the middle of the night. He maybe dressed hurly in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a haphazard way, threw on his, his cloak, and he didn't get dressed normally like he would, and so he ends up running away without clothing on because they had seized him, verse 51 says, and uh, he left behind the, the, the linen cloth that he had around him and ran away. So embarrassing moment. It's interesting, again, that the truthfulness of the Gospels would record something like this. This would be a weird little thing to make up and throw in another reason when you read things like that to kind of uh, hint to the historicity and the veracity, the truthfulness of the Gospel record. So I hope that helps. Deborah. thanks for that call. Let's head out to North Point, Alabama on WMFT. Angie, you're on the air. How can I help? Hi there. Thank you Hi. for taking my call. And I love your self. I love both programs. Thank <laughs> you. Well, that's... And Dr. Mike, or I know the Dell Um Terrific. I was reading the Isaiah the other day, and this sort of made me wonder. So this is about Isaiah 38, 7 and 8, where okay. the Lord tells him he's going to, It's a. I guess he's telling Isaiah that he's going to, Make the sun basically make the sun go down <laughs> or turn back time. It sounds like on on Ahaz, and I just didn't know if that meant that he would make time go back ten days, ten steps. Right. Well, the assumption is that this stairway that was used was a stairway that was kind of used like a, a sundial by the way that the shadow was cast, right, on this. And um, this it was the miracle that was described. It says in verse 4 uh, that Hezekiah was having this discussion, and this was part of God's sign to show that God was involved in all of this. But the stairway was used as a sundial, as we might imagine. If you think about ancient timekeeping, we don't have all the things we have now. And that's why that was chosen, and it was a sign from God and a miracle that was invoked for God's purposes. All right, well, we are we got a whole other hour of Open Line coming up on these stations. Most of these stations, our website is openlineradio.org. Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute. We'll be back right after this. Mm-hmm.